Aren't you the bank? I work for the bank. I don't think like a bank. Big bank, small bank, I like to make money. All right? Let me put it this way. I'm standing in front of a burning house, and I'm offering you fire insurance on it. I got so much trouble on my mind. Refuse to lose. Here's your ticket. Hear the drummer get wicked. Bank stocks caught up in the thicket. Trip it, kick it. Can I get a witness for this sickness in financials? Grab your pencils and your pouch. Sit up straight. No time to slouch. One bank, two bank, Swiss bank gone. Like King Yellow says, galong, galong, galong. A zunga, 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 zang, zang, zang. When's this meltdown ever going to end? Is the Fed going to sit there and pretend that raising rates will make this worse? No pivot, no pause, no plans to reverse. Just a guarantee that our money's protected. Deposits covered. Bailouts rejected. At least for now, let's see how this goes. Investors are caught up in the throes of indecision, no plan, no vision, no way to know whether to push or to press. That's why we let it ride on the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard. And do be careful opening those overhead compartments because things have shifted since we last spoke. A volatile week of trading highlighted by steep losses and scary headlines in the banking sector remarkably delivered gains for the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq, which both ended the week higher even after another big sell-off on Friday. It was a triple witching day after all, which is the simultaneous expiration on the same day for stock options, stock index futures, and stock index option contracts. As if things weren't scary enough around here. Still, sentiment was so bad last week as more than 90% of stocks in the S&P 500 suffered declines in three out of last week's five trading sessions. That doesn't happen very often, although it did last June and in March of 2020. But big tech stocks came to the rescue as investors went back to their old favorites for some air cover as bank stocks got battered. The Nasdaq 100 rose 5.8% to notch its best week since November. Was this a case of a revenge rally for the fangs? The ratio of a basket of the largest, most popular growth stocks relative to the S&P 500 is at its highest level since April of 2022, and those big market cappers have a way of dragging the whole market around with them. Some of that rise may have been in the hopes that the Fed will cool its rate hiking plans this week to lower the temperature on the banking sector. It was just over one year ago, March 17, 2022, that the Fed began its rate hiking campaign. And they say that the Fed hikes rates until something breaks. Well, something broke, and that was the balance sheets of regional banks across the country and around the world. First Republic Bank, which has been at the center of the storm, was forced to accept a $30 billion loan or cash infusion from 11 other banks led by Citigroup, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs, and Bank of America, among others. Believe me, those big banks do not want to see any more banks fail or get seized by the government. While they may benefit from new customers, the headline risk of another bank failure is way worse. While the First Republic rescue stemmed a temporary slide in its shares and the banking sector overall, investors don't want anything to do with financials right now. Shares of First Republic tumbled 72% last week, 32% after that $30 billion cash infusion was announced. That is not the sign of confidence we were looking for. KRE, the S&P Regional Bank ETF, is down 18% since March 10th when SVP was seized by regular. And on Sunday, Credit Suisse, the troubled Swiss bank, was sold to rival UBS for around $3 billion. This after Credit Suisse was forced to take a $54 billion loan from the Swiss National Bank last week to be able to pay its depositors. The Swiss National Bank also took the extra step in supporting the deal with a $108 billion safety net and guaranteeing to support up to $9 billion in losses to get the deal done. 
It's not lost on us that it was exactly 15 years ago this week that our Federal Reserve engineered the sale of Bear Stearns to JP Morgan for just $2 a share. Patterns, patterns everywhere. Now, Credit Suisse had its own problems before any of this banking business boiled over. The bank did not issue its 2022 annual report last week, citing serious errors discovered on its books from 2021 and 2022. That was the latest red flag coming out of Zurich, and the bears rushed in for the kill. Shares plunged 23% last week and were halted for trading on Friday. The stock had lost 75% of its value in the past year. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? We are, Maximus, but we like our banks to be boring. Give me a deposit slip, a lollipop, and a nice teller, and I'm happy. But they're not boring right now, and they're not healthy. Credit Suisse has its own problems, but it's a big enough bank to be considered systemically important to the entire banking system, which is why it was forced into a sale. And Moody's, the credit rating agency, downgraded the entire U.S. banking sector last week from stable to negative, citing a deteriorating operating environment and more challenges ahead given the Fed's continued tightening of monetary policy to fight inflation. Inflation was enemy number one for the Fed, for investors, and for households who are dealing with their own balance sheet problems. But this banking crisis has stolen the headlines and rekindled fears from the great financial crisis and the meltdown. While U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen tried to calm our fears with these words last week, I can reassure the members of the committee that our banking system is sound and that Americans can feel confident that their deposits will be there when they need them. This week's actions demonstrate our resolute commitment to ensure that our financial system remains strong and that depositors' savings remain safe. Searches on Investopedia for bank runs, bank failures, how safe is my money, and what is a systemically important financial institution have been through the roof lately. And banks have been bracing for more outflows as those with a percentage of the most uninsured deposits are under attack. That brought dozens of banks to the Federal Reserve's borrowing window, including the recently announced BTFP, the Bank Term Funding Program. That's essentially a borrowing window that banks can use to backstop their reserves. Between that and the Fed's discount window, U.S. banks borrowed a combined $164.8 billion last week to help them ride out the storm. This at a time when the Fed is trying to reduce its balance sheet. It actually grew by $297 billion last week. That's the largest increase since March of 2020. Nearly half of the quantitative tightening since last April was undone in one single week. And that brings us directly to our big three for the week. Number one, as Mark Twain would say, or didn't say, history doesn't repeat, but it often rhymes. Our pal Ryan Dietrich at the Carson Group, who likes to quote Twain, reminds us that we may have seen parts of this movie before. The Fed hiked rates aggressively in the early 1980s, and that ultimately tipped Continental Illinois Bank into failure. That was the largest bank failure until the Great Financial Crisis. Then the Fed hiked aggressively in 1994, and Orange County, California went bankrupt. The entire county. It had plenty of problems before the Fed hikes, but still, that was one of the wealthiest counties in the country once upon a time. And this time around, the Fed has been hiking rates aggressively for the past year, and so far, two banks have failed and may not be the last. Number two, back in 2008, you know who came to the rescue of some of the biggest banks in the world? I'd like to teach the world to sing. 
in perfect harmony. That's right. Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, and Berkshire Hathaway rode on in buying billions of dollars worth of preferred shares from banks like Goldman Sachs and Bank of America, giving them instant capital and netting Berkshire an estimated $10 billion profit when the smoke cleared. It's not a surprise that Twitter was abuzz this weekend, counting the number of private jets that flew into the Omaha airport this weekend. Were there any bank CEOs on those planes? Keep in mind, Berkshire Hathaway already owns close to 13% of Bank of America, over 3% of Bank of New York Mellon, that's Alexander Hamilton's bank, and half a percent of U.S. Bancorp. It also has its own mortgage and lending businesses that are vulnerable to a banking crisis as well. But most importantly, Berkshire's sitting on around $129 billion in cash, and that could be very useful if things get worse. And number three, since everyone, including me, is pretty concerned about all these headlines about bank failures, let's just remind ourselves on the basics of what's protected and what isn't, and who's doing the protecting around here anyway. First question, is my money insured? Bank deposits are automatically insured up to $250,000 at FDIC member institutions. That limit is per depositor, per bank, and it includes savings and checking accounts, money market accounts, and CDs. For joint accounts, like with your spouse, you get $250,000 of coverage each. Since the FDIC took control of SVB, however, the U.S. Treasury and the Federal Reserve have said that all deposits will be insured. Does that apply to all banks? No just member banks, so make sure your bank has that FDIC sign at the door or on the website. What if my bank fails? Well, if you have less than $250,000, you should receive your money back within days, likely from a new bank established by the FDIC. If it's over $250,000, you're going to get your money back, at least that's what the government says right now, but it could take a while to recoup it depending on how regulators handle the takeover of that bank. So far, it's working with Silicon Valley Bank as far as we've heard. Do credit unions have the same insurance? Yes, actually, the National Credit Union Administration offers a $250,000 insurance limit, much like the FDIC. Same deal there, though. Make sure your credit union is under that protection. Well, what if my brokerage account is held in a bank that fails? Good news. There's a nonprofit out there called the Securities Investor Protection Corporation, SIPC, which was created through the passage of the Securities Investor Protection Act of 1970, and that insures brokerage accounts up to $500,000. Coverage only applies to member institutions, and the SIPC only protects the custody function of the broker-dealer, which means that the SIPC works to restore to customers their securities and cash that are in their accounts when the brokerage firm liquidation begins. The SIPC does not protect against the value of the decline in your securities. SIPC does not protect individuals who are sold worthless stocks or other securities, nor does it protect against losses due to a broker's bad investment advice or for recommending inappropriate investments. But if your broker fails, you have a half a million dollars in coverage. Here's hoping that none of us will ever need that. Let's get set up for the week ahead and hold on tight because this week is going to be curvy. The FOMC meets on Tuesday and Wednesday with investors on a thin edge of a wire waiting to see if the committee will raise rates again or stand pat as this banking crisis plays out. As of Friday, the CME's FOMC FedWatch tool showed a close to 75% probability that the Fed will hike rates by another quarter of a percent and just a 25% chance of no rate hike at all. What will Fed Chair Powell say, though, about the banking crisis if the committee does raise rates? We'll keep opening the discount window as wide as possible to let that spring air in and allow banks to borrow cheaply from one another? Chris Whalen, our guest on The Express last week, basically called that, and he also said the fight might actually have to cut rates at the meeting. That would be bonkers. Remember, the European Central Bank went through with its half-a-point rate hike last week, even as Credit Suisse was circling the drain. Can the Fed fight inflation with more rate hikes with one hand and stabilize the banking system? 
momentum with the other? We're going to get into that in a couple of minutes with Justin Wolfers, one of my favorite economists and Fed watchers. Outside of the drama around interest rates, economic reports due out this week include existing home and new home sales updates for March, as well as durable goods orders for the month. On the corporate calendar, NVIDIA will host its annual GTC conference. Look for updates on chip orders and AI chips, everybody's new favorite flavor. And there's just a few earnings reports to focus on this week, including Nike, Winnebago, Darden Restaurants, and General Mills. What's up with cereal prices, General Mills? But all eyes will be on the Fed and the banks. Last week's sell-off landed hard on the banking sector, especially regional banks. Will there be more banks on the ropes this week, or has the contagion been contained? They say the Federal Reserve raises interest rates until something breaks. Something might have broken inside the banking system as 12 straight months of higher interest rates have pummeled the balance sheets of banks, large and small, across the world. This as countries like US and Europe have been tiptoeing around potential recessions and central banks have been battling sticky high inflation. So now what? What's the economic forecast look like and how do central banks get us out of this mess? When I need my principles of economics and monetary policy broken down and explained to me in a way that I can actually understand it, I tune into what Justin Wolfers is saying. He's a professor of public policy and economics at the University of Michigan and also a research associate with the National Bureau of Economic Research, also the author of several textbooks that every econ student has either carried or is carrying in their backpacks today. He is also the co-host of the terrific podcast, Think like an economist with Betsy Stevenson, and he is our special guest on the Investopedia Express this week. Welcome, Justin. Uh, pleasure. Let's get into it, mate. So much to talk about. There's so much. So everybody was worried about a recession. It's the number one concern among our readers, including higher interest rates. You're a research fellow at the NBER, the determinants of a recession. I'm not going to ask you what the NBER is saying now, but what are the signs and how does this banking mess impact all of that? Great question. So first of all, let's just get the term right. What is a recession? A recession's a period of declining economic activity. So during a recession, you would expect us to be producing less output today than we were in the past. You might expect the unemployment rate to rise. You might expect the number of jobs to be declining. You might expect retail sales to be falling. So we had this literal boom over the last 12 months, wonderful industry for those of us who are dismal scientists, of people talking about and asking about and thinking about a recession. Thing is, I have never seen a disjunction between reality and rhetoric as large as I've seen over the past year. 2022 was the second largest number of jobs gained by the American economy in a single year ever, second only to 2021. This was an economy that was growing faster than it almost ever has, and people were asking about a recession. So I spent much of the year going on shows like yours saying, we're not in recession and being remarkably unpopular because this has been the thought of the day. And so let me come back to your question, Caleb. Forget inflation. Inflation is bad. I don't like it. It's not part of the definition of a recession. A recession is when we're producing less than we were. And most of our indicators of the real economy are we're going gangbusters. It ain't a recession. If it's a recession, it's either the greatest recession ever with unemployment at a 50-year low and producing jobs at a remarkable rate, or it's the worst recession ever because it's been terrible at being a recession, or it's not a recession. Or it's the most anticipated recession that maybe never arrived, but does the mess in the banking sector somehow 
push us more towards that? I mean, Goldman Sachs is out there reducing GDP forecasts, not maybe necessarily into recessionary territory. And you're right. A lot of the signals are flashing green or yellow, not necessarily red when we look at the big indicators. So what impact could this actually have? By the way, I'm not promising listeners we're not going to hit a recession. On average, in the US economy, there's a one in seven chance we hit a recession in any given year. Maybe it's a little higher than that right now, but you know, a couple of months ago, people were saying it's a 65% chance. That's bananas. That's bonkers. Let's go to the Silicon Valley bank mess. Here's a really, really, really important thing for listeners to bear in mind. The thing about small banks is they're small. The economy's big. Silicon Valley Bank, even while it sounds impressive saying it's the 16th largest bank, first of all, all the depositors got made whole. All the loans are still out there. And all of this is occurring in one small part of the economy. So when I think about macroeconomics, remember, I have to be thinking not just about Silicon Valley. I have to be thinking about areas where I live, like the Midwest. And I have to be thinking about people who are waking up deciding, should I open my restaurant? Should I expand my business? Should I keep the factory working over the weekend? For most of them, this has been a bunch of headlines with no bite. This is not 2008 again. 2008 was Wall Street crumbling. This so far, and I think I'm optimistic, remains that way, very confined to, at the moment, one or two banks, plausibly a handful of banks, but very few of the dollars that make up our economy. Great point. And the contagion is more psychological, fanned on by Twitter, fanned on by social media, fanned on by pundits, talking about how this could be a bank run, how this could spread and be contagious across major banks. But they are much better capitalized today than they certainly were in 2008. There's tougher laws. They're huge when we talk about the six or seven biggest banks in America. Let's get to the Fed. Huge Fed meeting coming up this week. The Fed's got two battles going on right now, right? It's got the inflation battle that it's been fighting by raising rates, tightening policy, also trying to reduce its balance sheet. But now it has this banking thing where they're opening lending windows and they're battling two things at once. You make the point, and it's a great thread on your Twitter feed, folks. You got to check it out, that the Fed actually has multiple tools to do this. How can the Fed fight these multiple battles at the same time, Justin? Yeah. So I'm not going to give you a forecast about what the Fed's going to do because like, I don't get paid enough. But what I can do is give your listeners a way of thinking about it. So the dominant narrative I've heard out of the media is, oh my goodness, we've got one institution, the Fed, and two goals, financial stability economic stability. Financial stability would say, well, we need to not upset the boat. Let's reduce interest rates. This is by the naive view. Macroeconomic stability would be, well, inflation's too high. We've got to raise rates to crush it. And so people are like, oh, how could it do these things at the same time? The thing is the Fed has two different sets of tools. It can use interest rates to target inflation and the real economy. And then it has a bunch of other tools, liquidity provision, basically, where what's the current crisis? Basically, it's that most banks are solvent, which means they're plausible ongoing enterprises, but some of them don't have enough money in the vault. So what does the Fed do? It says, here, borrow some money. There'll be cash in the vault. And as soon as there's cash in the vault, no one needs to start another bank run. And so it has that set of tools, liquidity provision, to solve that problem. And so what this means, I want you to think about a different mental model. Don't think about there being one Fed. Think about there being a Fed with two buildings. In one building is a bunch of boffins who care a lot about inflation, and they get to call Jay Powell and say, raise or lower the interest rate. In another building, there's a bunch of different boffins, they're probably wearing suits, who care a lot about financial stability. 
And they get to call Jay Powell and say, hey, we need liquidity provision. We don't need liquidity provision. And you could basically, I don't want to overstate the point, but you could basically run a pretty successful central bank that kept those two buildings literally separate. And so that's why people were very puzzled. We saw Swiss Bank get in a lot of trouble. And the European Central Bank went ahead and raised interest rates by 50 basis points. And they're like, oh my goodness, do they not care about financial stability? Yes, they do. But they're using the right tool to solve the financial stability problem. And they're reserving interest rates to solve the macro stability problem. What does this mean for the Fed? The amount of betting on what the Fed's going to do since Silicon Valley collapsed has been amazing. Everyone was betting it was going to be 50 basis points, and they bet it was going to be 25, and there are people betting that it's going to be zero right now. This mental model I've given you is sort of a Fed in two buildings. It would explain how the Fed might think it's important to keep raising rates to crush inflation, even at a time of enormous financial nervousness. Now, I'm not going to tell you that they're definitely going to raise rates at the next meeting, but they're probably going to stay on trajectory. The only thing that I think really changes here is because of the financial stability concerns, they want to make sure there's no surprises. And so whatever they do next, they're going to signal the hell out of it. And for those of you who know, one of the ways they do this is leak to the Wall Street Journal. I'll make a bet right now, Caleb, between now and the meeting, Nick Simaros will write a column that will turn out to be eerily prescient about what exactly it is the Fed does. But if there's a pause, it's not for long. It's going to be rate rises delayed, not rate rises denied. Great point. And you're right. Somehow, Nick always does seem to have that first. And you cite something, a very obscure term called the Tinbergen rule about these multiple policy instruments that the Fed has. You got to go deep into the Investopedia archives to find that one. But that's what I love about the way you write. You bring up these obscure terms and tools that are very relevant to what's happening today. You know, you and I have been doing this for a long time. Nobody used to care about the Fed meetings. Nobody used to care about a lot of these terms about financial stability and all these things because we like our banks to be boring. We like our central bank to be boring. But this Fed has been right in the center of it all basically since the pandemic. So they find themselves with a lot of focus on them. And we in the investing public and out there in the media like to talk about it a lot. But this is a pivotal time for these decisions to be made, and there's a lot on edge here. So there's the psychological part of it that gets into people's minds. Justin, how do we avoid that and think about this big picture? What historical precedents are there where we can say, this has kind of happened in this way before, and this is kind of the way it works out? Well, so we've had lots of not quite bank runs, not quite financial collapses in the past. My better half, Betsy Stevenson, thinks there's something to be learned from the savings and loan crisis. Let me tell you how, when it comes time to do Fed prognosticating, how I do it. There is two approaches. One is I basically think, what's the best possible choice? And then I remember that the Fed is populated by literally hundreds of PhD economists, many of whom are brilliant, and they're incredibly likely to get to the best possible choice. If I can figure out what that is, the best choice, then I think that's actually the best forecast for what they're going to do. And, you know, when you read an analyst note that says the Fed is about to make the following four blunders, that's an arrogant, overconfident analyst because it's that analyst and three of their PhD-wielding colleagues and seven research assistants who came from Ivy League schools versus one of the truly great think tanks in global economics. I know who I'm going to bet on. So that's one approach, and it's one I recommend. The other is a little harder. It turns out I know most of these guys. What I try and do is put myself into their milieu. What is it they're thinking this week? This is where it can be helpful. So 
I'm a nerdy academic who sits around in the university. So what I miss is all the chatter on Wall Street. And they are plugged into those guys. So I have to talk to folks like you, Callum. You understand the degree of anxiety right now on Wall Street that a, an academic in Ann Arbor, Michigan isn't feeling. Because I'm dropping my kid off at a soccer game, right? I'm not like fretting about which bank goes down next. So I got to talk to you to learn a little bit about what's coming at them from that side. I do think there's a lot to be learned from what the ECB did because these folks are also part of a general central banking community, right? And so that's where you called the Tinbergen rule obscure, sure, but not among central bankers. This is a sort of founding philosophy. And so we want to make sure we're listening to them. And the other thing I know is these folks also call folks like me. They call my partner, they call fellow academics. And so what is being said in the hallways I populate? which markets folks don't have a great deal of access to that, but a large number of Federal Reserve members right now actually come from my background. And so you want to think about what all of those things are. And so if you talked only to the folks from Wall Street, what you'd be hearing right now is, oh my God, financial distress, they can never raise interest rates again. If you talk to fellow central bankers, you'd see this Tinbergen rule, multiple tools, multiple, and you think, well, maybe they're just going to charge on ahead. And you know, the answer is going to be some weighted average of all of those things. You're right. We do feel the anxiety. I'm close to Wall Street. The guy at the deli making my bacon, egg, and cheese this morning was asking me what was going to happen with the banks and with the Fed meeting next week. Everybody's tuned into it. What does the second half of the year look like to you? Look, here's a simple thing, because simple rules are useful. The single best indicator for how the economy is going to do next week, next quarter, next month, next year is how it's currently doing. It's currently doing pretty well. It's currently pretty hot. So that's the simple forecast. And after that, we can start to get a little bit complicated, but you don't want to get too fancy because figuring out the future is hard. So I know one of the dominant Wall Street narratives is the Fed are going to raise rates and screw it up and cause a recession. Now, the thing I always want to remind people is the Fed could screw it up, but they could screw it up in the other direction. They could not raise rates far enough, in which case we'd be looking at gangbusters growth, too much growth. And there's a general tendency I think your listeners might want to think about. Economists are trained to think about what might go wrong. But the thing about the distribution of risks is it's often pretty symmetric. And so we're not trained to think about what might go right, how we might get lucky. And so as I look forward, I reckon there's a 50% chance life's going to be better than we think. And there's a 50% chance it's going to be worse. And the fact that I actually think about that optimistic 50 makes me more optimistic than most people. So I'm not saying there won't be a recession, but gee, there's lots of reasons to suspect there might not be. Yeah, I want to walk on your side of the street because I think it seems a little bit brighter, but I don't disagree with you at all. There are lots of signs of recovery. And if you look at the jobs market, that's just one of them. But it's also been a dislocated economy given what we've been through over the last three years. So a lot has changed. You write textbooks about this, but you also speak to your students and you're right in the middle of the mix here. What has been the most profound change in just the way we operate as an economy here in the US and around the world as well? We don't have to go country by country, but what in your mind, just as a scientist on this, looks and feels so different? Caleb, you already showed what I think of as being the strongest sign of analytic rigor here, which is there's a disjunction between, look, the pandemic was hard, it sucked, we hated it, it destroyed many of our lives, it disrupted education, it was miserable. And aren't we all, at a personal level, I'm talking to you as a person, glad to have it behind us. Don't we not want to talk about it? That's you as a person, but you're also an economist.
And the thing is, the long shadow that it will cast means that we have to keep thinking through the frame of a COVID economy, of the largest disruption to the global economy in our lifetimes and in a century. We have to keep thinking about that hangover in so many different ways. Like, let me give you an example. Why are plane tickets expensive? Well, one reason is there was a whole year in which we didn't train any pilots. Now, you might think, oh, that's okay. We'll make up for it next year. No, you can't put twice as many people through pilot school in one year. And so that pilot idea actually permeates many occupations, teaching, nursing, many others. You can think about what if you're in the construction trades? A whole lot of kitchens got redone in 2021. You know what that means? A whole lot of kitchens aren't going to get redone in 23, 24, and 25. That shadow is going to continue to be cast over the economy throughout the medium run. And if you're not thinking about that shadow, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. Well, Justin, you know, Investopedia was founded on its dictionary on its investing finance and econ terms. I got to go to you, one of my favorite economists. What is your sort of econ term of the moment or your favorite term right now or the one that's just been so influential and important in your life? I would love to share it with our listeners. I'm going to blow your mind, man. I'm going to go with, because of the moment that we're in, personal responsibility. Now, that doesn't exactly sound like an economics word, but if you look at the way Silicon Valley Bank was managed, if you look at the fact that they took depositors' funds and gambled them like it's a casino, if you look at the fact that they looked regulators in the eye and said, we're not systemically important, don't regulate us, and then just several years later said, we're systemically important, we need to be backstopped like hell. There's a lot of personal responsibility missing here. And I could use fancy words like costs and benefits and moral hazard and all of that. But you know what? Sometimes you just got to be a good person. And I used to teach ethics, actually, at Stanford Business School. And sometimes we get lost from the human part of this. And each of us has a role to play. And it's to be a good person, damn it. That is so good. We love that personal responsibility for everyone. And you're a great economist, but you're also a great humanist. Justin Wolfers, a professor of public policy and economics at the University of Michigan. Also, folks, you got to check out Think Like an Economist. That is out there on all the podcast platforms. It's terrific. You and Betsy Stevenson do a great job of that. We are such big fans of yours, Justin, at Investopedia. Thanks so much for joining the Investopedia Express. A great pleasure. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And there are so many to choose from. Thanks to all of you for writing in with your suggestions. This week's term comes to us from Lindsay Morrison, who wrote in suggesting liquidity coverage ratio this week. And we love that term given all the concerns about liquidity in our nation's banks. According to our favorite website, the liquidity coverage ratio refers to the proportion of highly liquid assets held by financial institutions to ensure their ongoing ability to meet short-term obligations. This ratio is essentially a generic stress test that aims to anticipate market-wide shocks and make sure that financial institutions possess suitable capital preservation to ride out any short-term liquidity disruptions that may plague the market. The liquidity coverage ratio was a key outcome of the Basel Accord from back in 2010, which is a series of regulations developed by the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision. BCBS is the acronym. The BCBS is a group of 45 representatives from major global financial centers. One of the goals of the BCBS was to mandate that banks hold a specific level of highly liquid assets and maintain certain levels of fiscal solvency to discourage them from lending high levels of short-term debt. 
As a result, banks are required to hold an amount of high-quality liquid assets that's enough to fund cash outflows for 30 days. High-quality liquid assets include only those with a high potential to be converted easily and quickly into cash. The three categories of liquid assets with decreasing levels of quality are Level 1, Level 2A, and Level 2B. Read more about them on Investopedia.com because those assets are under the microscope right now as investors, regulators, and customers want to know just how healthy bank liquidity ratios are at the moment. Great suggestion, Lindsay. We're going to be sending you some of our finest socks to keep you smart this spring. We're going to let President Barack Obama take us out this week. Obama was president during the great financial crisis, and he oversaw the bailout of dozens of banks and financial institutions, as well as the creation of government programs like TARP, the Troubled Asset Relief Program, and other forms of government-led relief for the banking system. He also signed into law the Dodd-Frank Act, which imposed tougher restrictions on the nation's banks, including higher capital reserves and curbs on the amount of risky assets they could have on their books. Some of those restrictions were eventually loosened by the Trump administration just after he took office, and now many of them are being demanded to be put back into law by politicians in the wake of recent bank failures. Here's President Obama in a televised speech in 2010 decrying the bad behavior by banks that led to the financial crisis and urging lawmakers to pass Dodd-Frank into law, which they eventually did. But what we have seen over the past two years is that without reasonable and clear rules to check abuse and protect families, markets don't function freely. In fact, it was just the opposite. In the absence of such rules, our financial markets spun out of control. Credit markets froze, and our economy nearly plummeted into a second Great Depression. That's why financial reform is so necessary. We're going to hear a lot more chatter about tougher rules, containing risks, and reining in executives at banks that may have benefited from these recent disasters. Brace yourselves. Thanks for joining us this week, and special thanks to Justin Wolfers for climbing aboard the Express. That was clarifying and kind of positive, and we need that right now. Mind the hills this week and lean into the curves, and we'll talk again a little further on down the line. <laughs>